The main text for the message this morning is Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, we'll just read a selection from Isaiah 1 this morning. Uh, Anna will read that for us. Um, and then the other text that I want us to read really highlight the main theme of Isaiah 1, which is the depth of our own sin before God, but also the height of God's love for us, even in the midst of that enormous sin. And so Psalm 5 will point us to that depth of our sin. Romans 7 will point us to the depth of our sin. But then Romans 5 will point us to the height of God's love for us. And so I just want you to see that contrast in these texts that we read this morning. So again, Anna will read for us first, then Lisa will read from Psalm 5, Ryan from Romans 7, and then Don from Romans 5. Uh, So Anna, you can come on up. Isaiah 1, verses 2 through 7 and 18 through 20. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6. You are not, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 18. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
I realized we didn't pray before we read, so let me pray briefly right now that the Lord would help me and help us to hear his word. God, I pray that now you would um, equip me, Lord, to preach your word faithfully and accurately with power, God. And Lord, I pray for all who hear, Lord, that by your spirit, you would give us eyes of faith that we might indeed trust your word and entrust ourselves to you as our loving Heavenly Father. I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, as we come to the book of Isaiah, and especially as we come to Isaiah chapter 1, what we see should not be surprising to us. Indeed, I don't think it should be surprising to any human being, uh, much less any Christian. And fundamentally, what we see is Isaiah the prophet indicting the nation of Judah for their sins. And I say that this should not be surprising to us and should not be surprising to any person because God has indeed written his law upon our hearts. That is, every human being knows right from wrong, whether they have studied it in a class, whether they had parents that taught it to them or not, we all have God's law written on our heart and we know right from wrong. Now, people's consciences do have a variety of sensitivities. So some people's consciences will be very hard and they will only know a little bit of sin. Other people's consciences will be very tender and they will be very aware of every sin. But regardless of how hard or tender a person's conscience is, the reality is that all of us know right from wrong. We all know when we go astray and when we err. And so what Isaiah the prophet is doing is he's simply speaking to this reality that is already written on each of our hearts, and it's written on our hearts by the God of the universe. When he created the world, he created a moral universe. That is, he created a world that has a distinction between good and evil. Now, I'm often afraid that today in our culture, and I don't think it's just our culture, I think it's many other cultures of the world, we have lost sight of the fundamental significance of good and evil, of right and wrong. I think that if you were to go around our nation today and ask people, what's the biggest problem that we as a nation face? Most people would not tell you, well, the biggest problem is the fact that we do evil and we need to do right. Most people would tell you, well, we're, we need this sort of technology to solve our energy problem, or we need this sort of policy to, to stop this kind of poverty, or there's some sort of technocratic solution to every problem that we have. And this is the way that the modern American mind thinks. This is the way that I so often can fall into thinking that I just need to get the right technique down, I need to get the right knowledge in my head, that if I figure out the right thing, then I'll be able to solve the problems of my life, be able to solve the problems of the world, and I will be able to make everything better. And what Isaiah is saying here in chapter 1 and throughout his book is he's just trying to explode that notion that we are fundamentally good people And we just need the right policy added on top, or we need the right technology added on top. And then human goodness will be able to kind of sort itself out and take care of the various problems that we have. Indeed, there's this fundamental paradox that I think most modern Americans live with of of thinking that humans are essentially good, but also thinking that we have problems that are huge and enormous and that we don't know how to solve. And if we would listen to the prophet Isaiah, and if we would listen in particular to how he speaks to the depth of our sinfulness, 
then I think this world would start to make sense to us. We would start to realize that our problems are not primarily technocratic. They're not primarily about technology or our knowledge or education or policy or anything like that. But the fundamental problem of the human race is a problem that runs right down the middle of every human heart. It is the problem of good and evil. And this, far from being a simplistic assessment of the problems of our world, actually speaks to the depth of the problems that we face. Now, in particular, I think it can be a bit staggering for us and shocking to us to see what exactly sort, the sort of sin was that Isaiah was calling out among the people of Judah. Now, we as Christians, I think, often rightly think of the, the biggest sins as being the sins that break the, the Ten Commandments. We think of the sins of lying or murder or adultery. We think that these are the big sins, and this must be what Isaiah was calling the people to repent of. And Isaiah does, in part, call them to repentance from that. Isaiah 1 verse 21 does call the people murderers, and Isaiah says they have blood on their hands. So murder is one of the sins. But listen to these verses that show the primary sin that Isaiah is going to be addressing Judah about. If you look in Isaiah 1 verse 4, he calls them children who deal corruptly. In the middle of that verse, children who deal corruptly. So his problem that he's addressing is the problem of corruption. Or go down to verse 17. It says, he calls them to seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. This is what Isaiah is calling the people of Judah to repent from. Or go down to Isaiah 1 verse 23, and Isaiah says, Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. And so the primary sin that Isaiah is indicting Judah for is not lying or adultery or even murder. The primary sin that he is indicting them for is this failure to do what is right. This failure to care for the fatherless and to care for the widow. You see, there's two basic kinds of sin that, that, that Christians have historically thought about. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission, commission, are sins that we actively do. Sins like lying or adultery or murder. Those are sins of commission. And yet so often what we don't consider and what we fail to repent of are our sins of omission, meaning sins of things that we fail to do. And God calls each of us, he had called the people of Judah to care for the fatherless and the widow. And it's not so much that they were running around doing a lot of evil things, although they were doing some of that, the problem was that they were failing to do the right things, the things that God called them to. All throughout the, the history of Israel and Judah, God constantly reminded them that they were a people who had been redeemed from slavery, and so they ought to care for slaves just as God cared for them while they were yet slaves. This was not a new message to the people of Judah. They knew what God expected of them. 
And they just didn't do it. They were too interested in their own entertainment, their own fun, their own pleasure. And so they failed to care for the fatherless and the widow. And beloved, even as I studied this text this week, I felt that indictment fall hard on me. I ask myself, how in my own life am I caring for the fatherless or caring for the widow? And I must confess that I myself spend a lot more time being interested in my own pleasure and my own gain than I am interested in those who are oppressed, who have no voice, who are suffering in one way or another. I thank the Lord for everyone in this church who's involved with safe families and the way we've been able to continue our partnership with them. I pray that that will grow more. I think that's one huge way that we can care for the fatherless and for the widow. But I pray that our church would just abound. I pray that we'd be known for our care for the poor, for the oppressed, for the fatherless, for the widow. This is what it means to reflect the character of God who cared for us while we were yet weak and helpless, while we were yet sinners. We must have a go-and-tell kind of religion, not simply a come-and-see. We must seek people out, pursuing the lost, pursuing the hurting. And in such a way, we will indeed bring glory to Christ Jesus and reflect the heart of our Father. And so this is the fundamental sin that Isaiah is calling out among the people of Judah. But what Isaiah does here in chapter 1 is kind of remarkable. He's not simply calling out certain actions that he deems wrong, right? There are certain actions that are wrong. The way that they don't care for the fatherless or the widow is wrong. But part of Isaiah's burden in this opening volley of his prophecy is to try to get Judah to see the depth of their sin. That it's not simply a matter of behavior, doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing, but it is fundamentally a matter of their heart. And I think there are four primary ways in this chapter that Isaiah is trying to show them the depth of their sin. And that it is fundamentally a matter of their heart. So I'm going to go through these four things from chapter 1. The first thing that he shows them about the depth of their sin is that the essence of sin is turning away from God. The essence of sin is turning away from God. We see this in verses 2 and 3. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Now, just pause there for a moment before I pass that by. Notice the the power of Isaiah's words and how he claims to be speaking on behalf of God himself. He's not simply calling mere individuals to hear. He's not even simply calling the nation of Judah to hear. He is saying, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. In other words, he is saying that I am speaking for the God of all creation, for the God of heaven and earth. And when I speak the word of the Lord, all of heaven and earth is bound to hear the words that I say on his behalf. So this is the authority that Isaiah is bringing to his words. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know 
my people do not understand. Do you hear that image that Isaiah is portraying in these verses? First, in verse 2, he says, children have I reared and brought up. So in other words, he's saying that he lovingly cared for them as a good father. He provided them food. He provided them land. He provided them all the resources they need. And even though he has been a good father, what have they done? They have rebelled against him. Rebellion is the essence of sin. But then Isaiah even expands on this metaphor. Not only are they like children who have a good father and yet rebelled, they are like an ox or a donkey. In verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Do you hear what Isaiah is saying there? He's saying that oxen and donkeys can recognize their owners and can follow their commands. The the natural world all around us has a certain order to it. it. It has a certain way of simply following God's commands just as he designed them to do. This is something that even oxen and donkeys can do. And yet, we human beings and all of God's creation, even though God has been so good to us, we uniquely seem to have this inability to recognize the hand that feeds us, to recognize the one that cares for us, to recognize the one who rightfully owns us. And so we kick against him as if it were liberation when really we are bringing about our own death. God is a loving Heavenly Father who cares for all of His creatures. And when we sin against Him, we are being more foolish than an ox, more foolish than a donkey. We are being ungrateful and we are denying the very One who upholds our existence. Do you start to see how twisted sin really is? You see, sin is not merely a matter of hurting one another, of doing things that we, for some reason, somehow shouldn't do. No, sin is ultimately a matter of turning to God, saying, God, I know that you have loved me and that you have blessed me, but I'd rather not have you. I'd rather have my own way. And so, like petulant children, we turn away from the living God and into the path of sin. So this is the first sign of the depth of our sin, that we would turn away from the God who loves us and we would turn to things that cannot profit us, that cannot satisfy us. The second way that Isaiah shows us the depth of our sin is he gives us words to see how deeply sin has taken hold of us. How deeply sin has taken hold of us. This is verses 5 and 6. Isaiah says, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. He is giving us a picture of the depth of our sin, of the depth of sin that is taken hold in Judah. 
Again, verse 6, from the sole of the foot, even to the head. So that from the very, very bottom of your body to its very top, there is no soundness in it. There is not one thing that is working rightly. It is all bruises and sores and raw wounds. And not even wounds that are being treated properly, but open wounds that are still festering. This is the essence of sin. That it is something that is deep within us that we ourselves cannot cure. John Stott rightly said that the, the problem of the human race is not ultimately sins. It is not ultimately the behavior that we do. The ultimate problem of the human race is sin. And sin is the, the depth of the twistedness of our heart that we really would have a condition that we are unable to cure for ourselves. This is what Ryan read for us in Romans chapter 7, that we see that for whatever reason, we cannot do the thing that we want to do, but we do the very thing we hate. Sin has us so captive that we have no way of escape apart from God sending a deliverer, apart from God himself intervening in our lives. So often in the U.S., we can also look around us, look in our various neighbors and neighborhoods, and we see a lot of good people who seem to be living good lives, and therefore we think, well, maybe these people don't really need the gospel. They seem to be doing okay. And of course, we're right to see God's common grace and just the, the, generally, the way we see people are generally upstanding and, and rule-abiding and law-following, and that is a good gift of God. And yet it's important for us to see that even if a person's behavior outwardly all seems good and upright, they still have a problem within their hearts that they are bent more toward evil than toward good. And again, God may be giving them great grace to overcome this evil bent and to, to turn toward the good. And yet the fact remains that their hearts are desperately sick. And they cannot cure themselves. And so we must see that our sin problem is not, the, not, is not merely the problem of our external behaviors, but it is a problem of a twisted heart that we ourselves cannot cure. And indeed, the scripture tells us will not be cured until the coming age when we finally get our new bodies with new hearts and we can live fully for him. In the meantime, we continually battle this old nature that is always rearing up its head and try to pursue what is right. The next thing that Isaiah does to show us the depth of our sin is he shows us that even our good works, in particular our religious works, are not immune to sin's stranglehold. And so look in Isaiah 1, starting in verse 11. This is God speaking. He says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. 
your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And so hear that closing image in verse 15. When when they prayed in the Old Testament, they didn't fold their hands like this like we do. They lifted their hands like this to God when they prayed. And God is saying that when you spread out your hands, when you lift up your hands to me, You think that you are doing something righteous, something that honors me. You think you are praying to me. And yet when I look at you, all I see is hands that are full of blood. Beloved, we are no less prone to this sort of hypocrisy than the people of Israel were. It is entirely possible for us. Indeed, maybe even some of you have come in here this morning thinking that because you are here this morning offering your worship to God, offering your prayers to God and your songs to God, that therefore you must really be okay. You must be a good person. But this is the lie that Israel themselves believed. They thought, well, I I do the sacrifices. I, I pray. I give my offerings. And yet, God said that he does not care at all for their offerings. He he does not care at all for their worship. He does not care at all for their religious duties if they will not repent of their sin. Beloved, when we come together on Sunday mornings, the reason we come together is not to somehow even up the balances. Like we've been bad during the week and now we do something good on Sunday and so maybe it all kind of evens out and we'll be okay in God's sight. No, God rightfully owns every moment of our lives. As we saw in Isaiah 2 and 3, every second of our lives is to be given to God. And when we come together on Sunday, it should simply be the overflow of God's goodness that we have seen and we have testified to all week. Beloved, if you are living one life at home with your family or with your friends, And then you are coming to church on Sunday thinking that that will somehow make up for the wrong that you have done. You are sadly mistaken. God is not pleased with your worship. He does not want your prayers. He wants your repentance. He wants you to turn to him in purity and in truth. This is the worship that God most desires. And so, beloved, even though I rejoice that you are gathered here this morning and that the Lord has, I believe, made so many of us part of this family of God here at Providence Church, my greatest prayer for us is not that we would all gather on Sunday and worship the Lord mightily, but my prayer for us is that God would sanctify us and purify us. Again, that we would be this sort of people that cares for the fatherless and for the widows. Again, just as James said, True religion in the sight of God is this, to care for the orphan and the widow in their affliction. Let's give that kind of worship to God and not neglect this kind of worship either. The last reality about sin that Isaiah shows us, that shows us just how terrible sin is, as he makes clear that sin always leaves us in a physically vulnerable state. Sin always leaves us in a physically vulnerable state. In other words, sin does not merely affect us in some spiritual way, 
But sin actually affects our life day to day, our physical life. It makes us less secure, less well off. Listen to Isaiah 1, verses 7 and 8. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, in your very presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. As the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. This is the situation in which Judah finds itself now that it has forsaken God and gone after its own ways. Its cities are no longer secure. Its land is being burned. Foreign armies have come to make war on them. And then that image in verse 8, the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field. I think the, the best we can understand that is that just like there are temporary farm workers today in the United States, so they had temporary farm workers there. They would go into these fields for the summer months. They would build some sort of little shack just so they could have some shade in the heat of the day, but obviously nothing nice. And then when they were done, they would simply walk away. And so if you were to walk around Israel, you would see all of these rickety sheds and all of these vineyards and cucumber fields. And so Isaiah is using this image that everyone in Israel would have been familiar with to say that this is what your nation is like now that you have turned away from the living God. And beloved, the same is true in each of our lives. When we turn away from God and when we walk in sin, we gradually find ourselves more and more fearful that we will be found out in some way or that our sins will catch up to us. And so anxiety and stress begins to take hold of us more and more. We begin to lose sleep. We begin to lose interest in eating healthily or other things that we need in order to sustain our bodies. And it becomes a negative cycle. As we become weaker and weaker physically, we want to give ourselves more and more over to sin, thinking that that will somehow cure what ails us. In the end, we find ourselves utterly destroyed. Sin is not good for you physically. It is not good for your soul. Sin will tear you up in every way and leave you shattered. And so God has expressed here through Isaiah his hatred of sin. He's expressed the depth of condition that we have that we would turn away from a loving father and have this sickness that is rotting away our whole bodies. And of course, in light of that, we may well wonder what is going to happen to Judah. Indeed, what is going to happen to us as sinners? If all of this is true of our sin, then surely God has every right to destroy us, to wipe us out. And yet, as Isaiah so often does, he gives a ray of hope in the midst of all this judgment, in the midst of all of this indictment. It begins in verse 9. It says, If Yahweh of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah from the Old Testament, those were cities that were exceedingly wicked, that the Lord rained fire upon them and simply wiped them out. And the only one that he saved from that city 
was Lot, the nephew of Abraham. And so Judah is saying that we would have been like those cities. We would have been utterly wiped out. If, again, as the beginning of verse 9 says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors. So even in the midst of this vast sin and God's vast anger, even at their worship, God leaves them a few survivors. And then we see more good news at the end of Isaiah 1. This is verses 24 to 27. It says, therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes, right? That makes it sound like the Lord is simply going to come in judgment and he's going to wipe them out. Verse 25 says, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Do you see how the Lord's judgment is coming against Judah? It is not coming against them simply to wipe them out. It is coming against them to restore good judges so that they will care for the fatherless and the widows. It is to restore good counselors as at the beginning. The beginning that's referred to here is as the beginning under David and Solomon. It's this restoration of Israel's righteousness and might. This is why God brings judgment in order to purify and bring out what is better. God never brings judgment simply to condemn, simply to wipe out. He always has a redemptive purpose in it. And yet, of course, this should raise an enormous question for us. How can it be that our sin is so deep, that our hearts are so rotten, and yet God simply says that I will give you a remnant and I will restore you as at the first? And the answer for us comes in the very middle of chapter 1. Isaiah 1, verse 18. And this is the most astounding news that Isaiah could possibly deliver. And he delivers this news over and over again in his book of prophecy. Verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Or you could also translate that to say, Let us settle up accounts. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Beloved, how could this be? That we who have rejected this good heavenly father who have a sin condition that goes deeper than we could ever know, that think that our spiritual activity will somehow save us, who break our own bodies in the service of sin, how could it be that God will simply take this scarlet sin and make it white as snow, this sin that's red like crimson, and make it like wool? Well, the people of Isaiah's day could scarcely have known what this meant. Of course, they had the system of offering. But of course, part of the irony was that God was condemning their offering. 
because their hearts were already wicked even in the offering of it? Again, pointing clearly to the fact that we needed something better than the sacrifice of bulls and goats because they could not take away sin. So how could it be, again, that God would make sin that is like scarlet, as white as snow? Well, I think the clearest answer we get comes in the book of Revelation, where the Apostle John picks up on this very image from the book of Isaiah. And he's talking about the saints of God. In Revelation 7, verse 14, it says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Do you hear that? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There is only one detergent, beloved, that can ever wash away sin. There is only one thing that can ever cure this vast problem that all humanity has. And that one thing that can cure us is the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is why Jesus had to die upon a cross for you and for me. Him simply coming and giving us good advice, good teaching, telling us what to do would not have been sufficient. Our sin is too great. It has already overpowered us as Isaiah has made clear. And so what Christ had to do was he had to come, take on our form, the form of a man, and he had to die the death that we deserve in order that he might take this sickness of sin with him to the grave and raise up in newness of life, giving us a whole new power to live by, a power that is greater than the power of sin. We also read Romans 5, 8 this morning, and going on into verse 9, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in other words, you did not do anything to deserve this. You did not do anything to merit this. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Justified simply means you have been made right with God. God sees you as innocent. All the charges that Isaiah brings against Judah, he cannot, he will not bring against you because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because you have been justified. Since you have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Beloved, he raised up from the dead so that we could live in newness of life, so that we could in our joy keep pure religion, caring for the widow and the orphan. And in this way, we can also come into the presence of God and God is pleased to receive us by the blood of his Son. There is no way at all that God looks upon us and frowns or looks upon us and thinks we don't measure up somehow because Christ has already taken our place and he has measured up for us. He cared for the orphan and the widow. He cared for those whom no one else would care for. Again, if you remember from our series on Luke, one of the primary themes in Luke was this very theme that all the Pharisees and all the scribes, they were going about all their religious activities, 
And they were not caring for the least of these. And so Christ came and he condemns the religiosity. And he cares for the poor and for the orphan and the widow. And now his goodness, beloved, is credited to our account by faith alone. And so God does not condemn us. And we are indeed washed clean. And so as we consider this good and glorious news of the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done for us, let us live in joy, beloved, and live in gratitude. Knowing that if Christ did all of this for our sakes, and if he sends his spirit to us, that we might now live in him, then we are fully capable to be freed from the scourge of sin and to live fully for God. So with that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that even though our sins truly were as scarlet, Lord, you have made them as white as snow. God, you came and you died for us while we were yet sinners. Lord, I pray that we would never cease to be amazed by that, Lord. Lord, that you, who did have every right in the world to condemn us, to judge us, to kill us in our iniquity, instead chose to come and die for us. We praise you, God. Lord, I pray that this good news, Lord, would find a home in each of our hearts, Lord, that would cause us to rejoice day in and day out in your lavish mercy. Lord, that we would have joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory as we consider your work and your mercy towards us. Make us messengers of this good news too, I pray, for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.